Thank you, Scott. Um, I would echo that. I would a great chance for men to be together. That's always a great chance to get away sometimes and just lock in uh, what God might have for you. So um, before we try anything here, um, let's pray. Father, I recognize um, that in these moments, um, we, we really need your spirit to hear. Um, we know our minds um, are a battlefield. Um, we know we have an enemy um, who would not want us to hear what you have this morning. And so we pray that you would silence any other voices that we could hear yours above all. And so we thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began a series, You and I are in a battle. We're in a war. And we talked about an important principle and a definition that are significantly important we understand when we talk about spiritual warfare. We would define spiritual warfare this way. Revisit this definition. Spiritual warfare is the conflict that's being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that's being manifest or shown in the visible physical realm. Let me say it again. Spiritual warfare is that conflict that's being waged in the invisible spiritual realm and it's being manifest on what we see around us. And the principle behind this is simply everything we see in the visible physical realm is caused, provoked, or at least influenced by something in the invisible spiritual realm. In other words, our five senses are not the limit to reality. There's a spiritual battle going on in a realm we do not see, and it affects what happens. And it might have even affected you coming this morning. I mean, you might have thought, you know, I'm tired. I had so much to do, maybe I'm not going to go to worship service. That might have been a battle you had already this morning, um, but here you are, and, so, and, I, and I'm glad everyone's here. I want to look this morning a little bit more about this, where this battle start, where did it originate. Several passages help you and I to see how this battle began. Now, we don't have all the data we don't have everything there is to know, but God has let us know what we need to know. He has revealed some things to us. He's given us a picture using all of Scripture. A senator once concluded his resignation letter with this honest submission. He says, over a period of years, as I drank the heady wine of power and influence, my priorities in office became distorted. He says, success and recognition were foremost. Honesty and adherence to the law were not at the center of my focus. And like some others before me, I placed undue emphasis on raising funds, on achieving political status, and on impressing my friends. Strict compliance with the law would have allowed me to perform my public service without becoming the center of one controversy after another over the years. I wish my colleagues well. And it would please me if someone benefits from what I have said and rededicates himself or herself to staying clear of the line. When you are willing to walk 
close to the line, whether for political success, personal gain, or to help your friends, you risk waking up one day to find out that you have long since crossed a boundary that you vowed you would never cross. That is where I find myself today. Goodbye, good luck, thank you, and I apologize. Please include me in your prayers. A former senator, he was not the first to drink the heady wine of power and influence and cross the boundary between right and wrong. Nor will he be the last. Today, many people sacrifice honesty on the altar of prestige, power, and influence, and it might seem hard to believe, but the first crossing of that boundary took place in the heavenly realm. Because in the beginning, no war or rebellion existed. No one opposed God's sovereign rule or or voiced animosity against his holy purpose and his will. But then a disastrous event took place, marking the beginning of what we know as spiritual warfare. And so we study that. The overview of Scripture tells us there were angels, magnificent beings of great light, created to worship, adore, and magnify God. But then the battle, the war began in the angelic realm. One angel's rebellion began it all. What was the cause of Satan's rebellion? Well, interesting word, Satan, alone, it means adversary. And it's used in other, this word adversary is used in in, in general terms, like David went to war against an adversary and stuff like that. But when, the same Hebrew word, but when Satan's used and put the indefinite article in front of it, the adversary, it always refers to Satan. Or definite article, I should say. The adversary, that's Satan. Now, there's reference to Satan 19 times in the Old Testament, 36 times in the New Testament. And so he becomes a prominent figure in Scripture that we need to be aware of. If you go to Ezekiel 28, we're told of this king of Tyre, this human ruler. He came under God's judgment, and we read because his heart swelled with pride. But in verse 12, we're introduced to this power, this influence, who's behind the king. This influence that is affecting the king and his decisions and behavior. And in this back of Tyre's kingdom is this kingdom of darkness. And so God addresses what's behind the king and he exposes by revelation what's behind the king. Now I want us to note something important here. Some question whether Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, which we're about to look at, can authoritatively be interpreted to refer to Satan. Because there there is some differences, but I think there's some significant reasons to accept. Now, I'd like to list some of them. First of all, it's consistent with the tenor of Scripture. There's consistent reference to this rebellion of the one who rebels being cast down out of heaven. There's other passages that refer to that. There's also a consistent with the method of interpretation That's applied to other prophetic scripture. In other words, it's not unusual for Hebrew uh, prophetic scripture to pass from a description of events on earth to what's happening in the heavenly realms. In other words, there's a parallel of what's going on at earth with what's going on in the heavenly realms. That's not all that unusual in the Hebrew prophetic scripture. Also, what we read about is not absurd like ancient myths. 
It's instead detailed. It's credible. These passages throw light on unseen realm that's given nowhere else. And perhaps the strongest in my eyes, the reason that we need to consider these as referring to Satan, as these expressions used, which we're about to see, could not under any circumstances be applied to a mere human king. As we read them, you're like, yeah, clearly this cannot be referring to a human king. And I think the text itself just says what it says and makes us realize there's something behind these kings that God's revealing. And so let's go to Ezekiel 28. I want to read just verse 12. Well, read a couple of verses here. The end of verse 12, verse 12 says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. In other words, he's speaking to, to who is behind the king. You were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onks, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day you were created. They were prepared. Verse 14, you were an anointed cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. I'm sure as you read that, you're like, yeah, that's, you couldn't be saying that about a, a human king. And, and we would be right. But I want us to note a couple things that it helps us to understand Satan's rebellion better. We know right away from the text, he was shown in brilliance. And he didn't wear diamonds, he was a diamond. He was like when you walk into a car dealer and they have these nice cars in the showroom, but then there's the one sitting up high. He was the one sitting up high. He was the shiny one. And so we learn some things about this brilliance of this person. We know not only Lucifer's brilliance, we also knew he had an exalted place and a lofty position. He's given a job title here, and that is the anointed cherub. Lucifer was created a perfect angel with a choice. God designed the Ark of the Covenant with two angels, one on each side. And they had their spreading wings was over the mercy seat, as we read about this in the Old Testament. And these angels who, were on, who had wings covering the mercy seat were called covering cherub. And they represented angels who were associated with God's holiness. But it appears these covering cherubs were subservient to an anointed cherub. And that's the reference there is here to this figure, was an anointed cherub. And we know from the Old Testament teaching, a cherub was always associated with guarding the holiness of God. It was part of their job description, so to speak. And we're told here that he was perhaps the highest we could say from the language here, he was the highest angelic creature. And so we read about here Lucifer's brilliance. We read about his lofty position, exalted place. But then we read about his terrible pride. You're an anointed cherub, verse 14. I place you, you're on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. And you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. He had all this. But then there was a terrible time he stood in front of the mirror. 
You know what I'm talking about. If you ever go to a, a gymnasium or a workout or fitness center, they got mirrors, right? And you have them people pumping iron, and they're going through that, and, and they look in the mirror and say, dude, <laughs> you looking good. You're making progress. You need to show off them guns. Satan looked in the mirror, and he said, you know what? I'm looking good. I, I'm a, a, perhaps a little more brilliant than others around me. And he got heady. And pride became part of him. And he said, hey, I got it happening. Look at the jasper. Look at the diamonds. And he said to himself, I don't have to take the back seat to anybody. I don't have to be number two. You know what? I deserve some of that worship. And that's where his thoughts went. But Satan never comprehended a created being can never raise to a higher level than the purpose for which he was created. And we're told Lucifer lost his perfections, his place, his position because unrighteousness was found in him. Now look closely at verse 17. He rebelled because he forgot some things. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. For the sake of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. He forgot something. Verse 13, on the day you were created. Verse 15, from the day you were created. He forgot the reason he was so magnificent. It's because he was created that way. Now you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he should have known that. But you ever play that game? Look at the business I built. I mean, look at all the things I got. I mean, he's still playing that con game, isn't he? I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. And we begin to play that game, and we get duped by the enemy to play his game. We look in the mirror way too long. We come to conclusions we shouldn't. I found it interesting in 1 Timothy 3.6. It's one of those passages we tend to fly over, and we shouldn't for a couple of reasons. One in the context that we read about this is Paul's giving instructions to Timothy. He says, you know what? When you look for a deacon, you look for a leader in the church, here's some things you need to look for. And, and he gets real specific. And then he gets to verse 6, and we have a little insight into the spiritual battle. This particular overseer, this leader in the church, he must not become a recent convert. Why? He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's a warning, but it's also insight into the enemy, his pride. So Paul gives us a little hint of the temptation of the battle that could come upon a new convert because he has the maturity to handle the onslaught of those temptations. Pride was so terrible. Self-worship was so terrible and is so terrible because it makes us think independently of God. We begin to think, I don't need him. God's the only one who doesn't answer to anyone. He's independent of anything or anyone outside of self. Now, if I was to ask you what's the opposite of right, you'd say, right? What's the opposite of good? If I say what's the opposite of God, you'd say, and that's the problem. God has no opposite. I mean, he's in a class all by himself. And Satan would have us believe yeah, I'm, I'm part of that discussion. 
of a sovereign ruler. That's what he would like us to believe. And so he has this diabolical plan. And when he chose to act, he began a plan of rebellion. Other angels were offered this option by him to join him. We'll read about a verse here in a second. Satan offers allurements if we'll follow after those allurements. But God says, I want you to know what's behind them. There's an enemy behind them. Satan's pride is the cause of his rebellion. Now, notice the similar language to Ezekiel 28 and what will be Isaiah 14 when we look at these verses. 2 Peter 2.4. Paul's addressing false prophets and teachers, and he says in 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels, plural, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... And I won't read on because he continues to expand the context of it. But again, I want us to grab insight from that verse. Angels, plural, and he casts them. It's kind of the same language Ezekiel 28 had. It was cast down. Go to Jude 6. It's a little book right before the book of Revelation. I say Jude 6 because there's only one chapter. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So we're told their angels did not stay in the position of their authority. Did not stay in their position, which was as an angel, as one who worshipped God. Did not stay in their position. Did not stay in their authority. They rejected God's sovereign rule. And these angels who rebelled, plural, we know to be demons. We read about them a lot in the Gospels. And so you have Satan, this being, we read about in Ezekiel 28. And you have these other angels who rebelled, demons. And there you have a picture of our opposition. Well, what's the content of Satan's rebellion? What, what's kind of really, when we, what can we get a real picture of what's behind it all? Well, we can if we go to Isaiah 14. Now, Isaiah 14, prophets speaking against the king and the system of Babylon. It was a godless nation. And to understand the content of the plan, we see in Isaiah 14 what that is. It could describe, and I believe it does, the nature of the devil's rebellion as a negative volition. He made a very bad decision, to say the least, in his will. He exercised his will in five ways. Notice in verse 12 through 14. And again, notice the language really could not be used of another human king. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That, that phrase, day star, is where you get the name Lucifer. Lucifer is kind of more of a Latin word, and so you don't necessarily really find Lucifer in the Bible, but it kind of comes from this, um, this word, Hebrew word, O day star. Son of the dawn, verse 13 how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol. Notice that we keep running into that phrase. God wants it pretty clear where this enemy's going. You'll be brought down to the far reaches of the pit. What's the content of Satan's rebellion? We find 
He exercises will five ways. He says, first of all, I will ascend. In his heart, he said, I will. He made a choice. He's not talking about a trip to heaven. He's talking about taking over. I will ascend. His view is to occupy Satan's throne. I will ascend, he says. Secondly, he says, I will set my throne. I will set my throne on high. That's a pretty scary thought, huh? You know, when it comes on high, where, where only God is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a throne up there. I'm going to set my throne up there. And you can kind of see the deception involved. He's tired of leaving angels and worship God. He's tired of the greatness of God, of being subject to God. He's tired of God being the subject of every meeting. He wants to be the subject. He wants to be the focal point. We see the stars there interpreted a couple times in Scripture as angels. Well, we see another thing when he says, he said, you said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, and then I will sit on the mount of assembly. I'll sit on the mount of assembly. He didn't pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He prayed, my kingdom come, my will be done. That was his prayer. Isaiah 2.2 says a mountain is really the center of God's rule. We read about this, this expression used. He then says, after that, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. The Bible associates clouds and this word heights with God's glory. Continually in Exodus we read about it. And glory often came in the um, appearance of a cloud. Satan wanted glory. And instead of reflecting God's glory, his created role and his purpose was to reflect God's glory. He seeks to possess it himself. And his activity is geared toward that end. He wanted to share what could not be shared. God's glory. God's greatness. He wanted to divide what could not be divided. He wanted some of the glory. In verse 14b, then we shouldn't be surprised after all that. He says, I will make myself like the Most High. I mean, think about it. The greatest deceiver was the one who was, great, who was the most greatly deceived. To actually think, I could be like the Most High. Here is Satan, creature that he is, looking up at all this, this all-knowing, this all-powerful, this all-present God saying, I'm going to be like him. That's what he said. He was so deceived. And for Satan to be like God would mean that they're two gods. That's not going to happen. That's why we read multiple times in Scripture. Isaiah 43.10, God says, Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, there is no other Beside me there is no God. I will not yield my glory to another. God's glory won't be divided. He's not going to say, hey, here's my glory. Hey, take some. Sure, Satan, good idea. Here you go. God says that ain't going to happen. I won't yield my glory to another. And so we need to understand that God doesn't share his glory. God's consumed with his glory because there's no one else like him. Our enemy's goal, though, Surrounded by our spiritual enemy, he wants us to think in those terms of saying, hey, live for yourself. Try to get the glory for yourself. Thump your chest. 
That's Satan's game. That's not God's. We're surrounded by a spiritual enemy. And again, the battle's not for land. It's not for anything visible. It's a cosmic battle for glory. There's a battle every day in your personal life, in our families, in our churches, of who's going to get the glory. Reason Satan's rebellion is so hideous is he wasn't tempted to do it by anyone. He came up with the plan all, all by himself. And he didn't rebel alone. He pulled others in. Revelation 12.4 suggests one-third of the angels also cast down. So you got a whole lot of demons cast down with them. And the war boils down. When you boil it all down, it's about who's going to get the glory. That's why he hates worship services. Because he knows when people come together, they're going to worship. That's why some of you have even shared some of the greatest attacks you face are on Sunday morning. Kids flying on the walls and you feel a frustration. Anybody relate? Frustration raising and raising and raising and, and you're starting to get a little ticked off here. And, and so, but you get to church, but you're not, you're not ready. And, and Satan, or Satan says, you know what? There's some pretty good things to do Sunday morning. You can play hockey. It's a big one in our culture, right? There's a lot of good things you could do. Go do some of these things. Just don't go worship. Just don't do that. That's Satan. He does not want God's people to worship. You did good coming here this morning. You weren't duped. You said, I'm going to go to God's house and I'm going to worship. I'm going to exalt him. I'm going to honor him. Way to go. The devil and his followers will spend eternity continually reminded that God has no equal. And that pride of even playing God is repulsive to him. Some people think of hell wrong. Think of hell really is a testimony to the justice of God. We worship God fully because he's a just God. And while we look at hell and go, oh, yuck, we should look at hell and say, God, you are a just God and we worship you. We worship you that you don't compromise your perfection. You don't compromise your integrity. You are a just God. Even the creation of hell should point us to worship. We don't tend to look at it that way. But it communicates the beautiful justice of God. He'll never compromise it. Well, the curse of the rebellion. God gave the gift of choice. The rebellion occurred, but he took control of the results. We're told that Satan in demonic realm has an immediate sentence. We read it multiple times. God expelled him from the mountain of God. God cast him down. God took away his place amid the stones of fire. He was cast to the ground. So Satan has lost his privileged place near God's throne. He fell to earth, but he's not going quietly. Roman 12, 12 warns, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing something. We're told this Satan knows he only has a short time. Boy, we should maybe remember that too. Our days here, aren't, we're not going to be here on earth forever. But it's amazing what Satan knows. He works hard to cause us to forget the same thing. And so Satan, we know the curse of his rebellion. He has immediate sentence. He also has an eternal sentence. Isaiah 14, 15 refers to Satan's ultimate sentence. You will be thrust down to Sheol, the recesses of the pit. 
Revelation 20.10 tells us Satan's eternal destiny is eternal fire executed. My thoughts at the end of the millennium kingdom, whether it's there or not, we just know he's sentenced to eternal fire. Matthew 25.41 tells us hell was never made for human beings. It was created for Satan and the demonic realm who rebelled against him. But many people will go there because they followed in the rebellion and didn't seek out forgiveness and salvation in Christ. And Satan was decisively and eternally judged for his own sin. The final portion of his sentence has not yet been carried out. So now he has access to the earth and he retains some of his influence. And Satan now is our sworn enemy. And we're part of a war we're caught in that's happening in the heavenly, unseen realm, but we're seeing the effects in the visible, physical realm. Many people will go to hell because they choose to. They choose to rebel just like Satan did. And so the decision is either we trust Christ for salvation or we'll reject him. There's not like other options. Either you'll choose to trust him as Savior or reject him as Savior. Now you might be saying, I haven't rejected God. I believe in God. Well, James 2.19 says, be careful of just taking a general view of that because even Satan and the demons believe there's a God. And to be honest, at least they shudder. So be careful of making a general thing. Well, I believe God. The demonic realm knows there's a God too. It isn't whether you believe God it's whether you believe God's word and saying you fall short of the glory of God and salvation's found in no other name but Jesus Christ and coming to the cross. Having Christ as your cornerstone. If that doesn't happen, you join in a rebellion of the enemy. You need Christ. I need Christ. He's the only way of salvation. But I want you to see God's plan in all this. This is amazing. Satanic, uh, Satan and the re uh, demons rebelled against God. They wanted some of that glory. And God says, I'll, I'll tell you what. You want some of that glory? Watch this plan. And God threw a curveball. He says, I want you to see a plan. You've tried, to attack, you've tried to attack me at every point in my plan all throughout history. And God says, here's my curveball. I'm going to come down and pay for the sin of mankind. And then I'm going to take a chosen people. And I'm going to work in them to the point that they become a display of my glory, Ephesians says. Remember the issue? for glory. And God says, Satan, I'm going to build something that's going to display my glory. The very thing he was created for, to display God's glory, God says, my curveball, it's called grace. And I have a people who are going to live and display my glory. No wonder he hates the church. That's why he hates you. That's why he wants to destroy and divide churches. Because God's building something. That's meant to display and reflect his glory. And this becomes a connection between the rebellion and our response. As a young man in the late 1600s, Edward Teach joined a crew of a British ship that was headed to the Caribbean. Much later in his nautical career, he managed to capture a merchant vessel and he turned it into a 40-gun warship. Teach soon had another nickname given to him. Blackbeard. He became the most feared pirate in the hemisphere. And Blackbeard had some success as a pirate, but his, I guess, career, you could say, was abruptly ended when he encountered a contingent 
from the British Royal Navy. And in, death, in a desperate battle, he and his fellow pirates were killed, putting an end to their terrorizing efforts. Well, long ago in the heavenly places, an angel fell into spiritual piracy. Lucifer was a cherub who stood in the radiant glory of God, which we read. But his own self-love replaced love for his creator. And desiring to be like the Most High, he led a rebellion and was cast out of heaven. And today, him and his henchmen are doing whatever they can to commandeer the lives of human beings. We need to realize the origin of the battle, but we also need to make sure that we apply some things. The first one, I'm just going to use a word, guard God's glory. The word guard, I use it in a sense of make sure you give it to him. Guard your life so that it reflects glory to him. To counteract the effect of Satan's rebellion in your life, you must learn God will go to enormous lengths to guard and preserve his glory. If you try to take what belongs to him, you're in real trouble. Refuse to take the glory that's God's. Reflect it back to him. Don't be deceived and try to exalt self. Point to your accomplishments, your efforts, any gifts or talents you may have to God. So people would praise him. If you do not love God's glory, he won't use you. He'll set you on a shelf. So you're not living for the praise of his name. Guard God's glory. And the second thing maybe goes without saying, but then again we should say it, humble yourself before God. James 4.10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, let him do anything like that. You humble yourself. True humility is measuring against the right standard and knowing where you stand in relation to that standard. We're told we fall short of the glory of God and we know that to be true. But don't use the wrong standard. It's not the culture, it's not other people you know, it's not the media. We fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. Pride is Satan's sin. God hates pride. He doesn't just dislike it, he hates it. Because it reminds him of the origin of this battle. But God responds to those who come humbly. Those who act dependently on him. And to not come in humility, we're told, is to miss the grace of God. The origin of the battle is satanic rebellion. But let's not be like that. Let's humble ourselves before God and not resist him in pride. Stories told of two brothers. One grew up to become a big professional, Mr. Big Stuff. He had the position, had the money, had the recognition. His other brother became a farmer. Now, Mr. Big Stuff came home, and he kind of got to the point that because he had all this position and everything, you just couldn't tell him anything. He knew it all. One day, he visits his brother on a farm. He says, you know, listen, brother, why are you doing all this menial work? Make something yourself. When are you going to get, when are you going to get a name, a position? His brother, the farmer, thought for a moment. He said, he said brother, you see those stalks of wheat out there in the field? He said, there's something interesting about that wheat. He said, the stalks that stand up straight, they have nothing in their heads. The ones that have something in their heads, they're bowing down to the ground. 
Which stock are you? We know which stock Satan is. The question is, which stock are you? Let's pray. In these moments, I, I really want to allow us to spend some time with God because, frankly, honest, we need to humble ourselves before God. And if you're like me, there's times maybe you look back in this week or maybe it's been a chronic process where you've begun to think too highly of yourself. You've begun to take some of the accolades that were never meant for you to take. You've lived for applause, not for his glory. I want to allow you some time to repent of pride and to humble yourself and call upon his grace and forgiveness. Let me allow you that time. Spend some time with the Lord right now. Lord, we claim the promise of your word, the warning of your word, that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We bow before your throne. We bow before your authority. We freely, readily, joyfully proclaim you our Lord. You are the one true God. You will not yield your glory to another. And as your children, God, it's our desire to live for the glory of your name, to be a display of your grace, so that in all things, everything said, everything done, might you be praised, might you be glorified. In your name, Jesus, we pray.